This webinar recording is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. Our host today is Ali Salman. Today we have a webinar by Nadir Hashimi. He is the Associate Professor of Joseph Corbel School of International Studies at University of Denver and Director of Center for Middle East Studies. The topic is, is Liberty and Islamic Value. I guess Dr. Nadir, uh, 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 we, can, we can start. We have a few participants already joined in. And so we're going to formally start. I, I believe that uh, other uh, friends will join soon. Um, and uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, welcome to the second webinar of Istanbul Network, where we have uh, Dr. Nadir Hashmi, Associate Professor, University of Denver, uh, written a number of books which concerns the, the place uh, of Islam in the modern world. Today, we are going to have a dis discussion on. Uh, is liberty in Islamic value? And, um, and uh, as usual, we will start with about uh, about 20 minutes, about 20 minutes uh, uh, introduction uh, by the speaker the about the topic, about the and topic. then we will uh, go on uh, with the discussions uh, with with, with, uh, with, uh, with participants. So I guess that without further ado, I will request Dr. Uh, start. Okay, thank you very much, Ali, for the invitation. Thank you to the Istanbul Network for organizing this webinar. I realize it's very late in Malaysia at this time, so I appreciate people staying up uh, at a very late hour to participate in this event. It's roughly eight o'clock in the morning here in Denver, and so I realize I'm at an advantage in terms of the timing of this event. I want to speak about the question of the relationship between Islam and liberty, but before I begin, I just want to look at some of my notes. So I want to make sure, Ali, that if I open my notes like this, does it pose a problem in terms of my presentation? Uh, no, no, I think uh, it's, no, no, I it's, think it's okay. You can okay. okay, great. So, you know, I want to begin then on the topic of Islam and liberty to clarify one terminological definition that I'm using the term liberty here as synonymous with freedom. There is within the study of political philosophy a difference historically in the West in terms of how liberty and freedom and those concepts have evolved, but for the sake of this presentation and this webinar, I'm going to use the term liberty and freedom interchangeably. And so the first observation that I'd like to make is that there are many people around the world, both in the Muslim world and in the non-Muslim world, who firmly and passionately believe that the concept of freedom does not exist within Islam, within its theology, its doctrine, its historical experience, its civiliz civilizational ethos, or within its ethical tradition. In the West, many people uh, unfortunately believe that ISIS embodies Islam. And so how can there be any concept of freedom or liberty? That's a widely held view that, um, you know, Islam is a totalitarian religion. It does not accept modern concepts such as freedom or liberty. And the reason why there is so much turmoil in the Middle East or the Muslim world, many people in the West believe, is because of something inherent within Islam's core identity. And people such as Donald Trump and many right-wing authoritarian populists in Europe Europe and in other places have used to scare their populations and to advance their pathetic careers. Now, on the other side of the equation, there are also many people in the Muslim world, a prominent constituency, who have very negative views toward the concept of freedom 
or liberty. They view these terms and these ideas and these concepts with a lot of skepticism, disdain, and rejection. Muslims, these Muslims believe that God has really, you know, provided a blueprint, a manual for Muslims to follow. It is contained in the Quran and in the Hadiths of the Prophet. And the learned, learned scholars among us have explained and interpreted these verses. And all that is left to do for a believing Muslim is to follow the rules and commandments of God and everything in the world will be fine. Khalas, end of story, that's the way we should proceed. In this particular view of Islam, there is no freedom to choose, only to obey. In this view of Islam, Muslims really don't need to think or reflect or debate about what is good or bad, what is virtuous and what is evil. A Muslim simply needs to follow the established rules, codes, and commandments of Islam, and to implement them as rigorously and as faithfully as possible, especially the established rituals of Islam, prayer, fasting, etc., and then everything in the world will be fine. This view of Islam views the concept of freedom or liberty as almost identical with moral perversion, decadence, chaos, and the breakdown of social order. And so, Many Muslims argue that it's best to avoid the concept of freedom or liberty and simply stick to Islam as traditionally understood. Now, my own view clearly rejects this widely held position within many Muslim societies. My own view is that Islam is a civilizational and religious tradition like Christianity, like Judaism, like Hinduism, and like other great religious traditions that can be interpreted in many different ways. And while I respect the, the right of Muslims to interpret their religious tradition in their own way, my own personal reading of Islam's religious tradition is one that presents an interpretation of Islam that is fully compatible with liberty and with freedom. And I make that argument and I make that claim for the following reasons. Um, freedom, in my view, is central to Islam. It's actually within Islam's DNA. And then a full commitment to being a Muslim really demands that you accept the concept of freedom. To deny or reject freedom is really to fundamentally, I think, misread the core message and moral trajectory of the Quran and the message of the Prophet Muhammad. I'm of the view that in order to be, number one, a practicing Muslim in the full sense of the word, word, one has to live in a free society. One has to live in a society where there is a relative absence of state coercion and state imposition that prohibits limits on freedom of expression. And there must be guarantees of basic social and political and religious freedoms in order for a Muslim to be able to live a full and practicing Muslim. And so there's a certain irony here that I don't think most Muslims have appreciated that you can be a better Muslim today in Canada or in many countries in the West than you can in many Muslim-majority countries like Iran or Saudi Arabia or Egypt. And that's because in many Western countries, there is a basic guarantee of religious freedom, of openness, of a right to choose and to live your life in a way that is in keeping with your religious values. Now, some people have questioned this claim in the, in, in, in the context of recent developments in the West with the rise of Islamophobia and Donald Trump, but I still think broadly this claim holds true. Now, having said that, the second point that I want to mention with respect to the concept of freedom is that every society around the world places limits on freedom. There's no such thing as absolute and unhindered freedom. 
all societies establish limits, and these limits are debated in a democratic context in its most ideal form. In a democracy, democratic societies debate and um, agree upon the limits of freedom. So uh, I'm not arguing here that there should be no constraints or no limits on freedom. The whole history of the West, for example, is inundated or filled with examples where uh, societies debated what the limits of freedom should be, and there's many examples that I could cite. And I think Muslim societies, to the extent that they have a voice and an ability to engage in a public conversation and deliberation on the question of freedom or liberty, should collectively decide on what those limits are. But at the same time, they shouldn't reject the concept of freedom entirely, or they shouldn't allow a handful of people within their society to determine what those limits of freedom should be. They should be a broad public conversation that applies to all members of a Muslim majority society. Now, one of the key points of friction that often emerge in this debate on um, freedom and Islam, liberty and Islam, is this question, religious blasphemy. In other words, uh, there is a deep fear that many Muslims have that one reason why we have to reject the concept of freedom is because if you allow freedom in society, that will allow some people to target, to ridicule and attack your sacred symbols and those elements of your identity that you consider to be beyond criticism and beyond ridicule. And I'm talking specifically about the figure of the Prophet Muhammad, the Quran, the family of the Prophet and his companions. So this concept of blasphemy, of protecting certain elements in society, making those, those elements, those religious symbols of your identity off limits to freedom of expression and attack is an issue that frequently comes up in Muslim some societies. And to give you just one example, in um, post uh, Arab Spring Tunisia, when they were writing the, a new constitution, this issue of blasphemy and of the limits on freedom of expression emerged in the constitutional debates in Tunisia, and it was one of the most difficult issues to resolve. Some people in the constitutional convention argued that if you impose or if you insist on an article in the constitution that punishes people for blasphemy, then that can lead to abuse. That can lead to human rights violations. That can lead to a lot more problems than it solves. So religious members of the constitutional delegation wanted some protection for the sacred symbols of Islam. Others in the Constitutional Assembly argued that this is very problematic because then it could lead to um, the abuse of power. In the end, the Constitutional de delegates tried to strike a compromise and tried to create a balance between these two competing you know, concerns. And I think that very much is the way forward for most Muslim majority societies, that one has to try and strike a balance between these questions, particularly if you aspire to live in a society that is democratic and that respects the right of freedom of expression for all of its members. If you don't aspire to that particular value, well then this argument that I'm advancing has no particular uh, value or interest to you. Um, to give you just one example of how the abuse of power takes place with respect to questions of blasphemy, not too long ago there, were, there was a debate in Indonesia where the courts 
convicted the governor of Jakarta and charged him with blasphemy. The governor at the time um, was a Christian and he was uh, charged and he was um, facing a two-year prison sentence. What was his crime? He rebuked claims by another religious cleric in Indonesia who said that the Quran mandates that Muslims have to vote for Muslim candidates over a non-Muslim candidate. He rejected that argument and then he was charged with being blasphemous. Um, and then it became a debate as to whether, you know, he had actually committed an act of blasphemy or not. And um, this created a huge problem both for Indonesian society and for Indonesia's reputation globally. Um, so the question of freedom of expression and blasphemy is one big topic that frequently comes up. And it's a topic that some people think is only a Muslim problem. It's not. Questions of blasphemy and where do you draw the lines is a longstanding debate in the West as well when, when, when the conversation of the limits of freedom of expression come up. And I can cite many examples in the second part of our program if, you, if anyone wanted more um, information. But much more centrally, I think the core of my argument as to why freedom is so central to Islam can really be found within the story of human creation that we read in the Quran. According to the Quranic narrative reported in the second chapter of the Quran in Surah Baqarah um, and elaborated elsewhere in the text, human beings are first created by God after he consults with his angels about the selection of a representative for God on earth. And the angels warn God, and this is a story right in the Quran that everyone is familiar with, the angels warn God that man, if you create him, will promote violence and mischief, that he will create uh, chaos on earth if God proceeds with his plan. But God dismisses the objections of the angels and tells the angels that he knows things that they do not and he claims that humans also have the potential for human goodness. Now, within this story of the Quran, the angels are then asked to bow down before the first human creation of God, the figure of Adam, Adam, um, in recognition of his superior, superiority that God has created. But there's one particular entity, a figure in the Quran known as Iblis, that refuses to do so. Iblis is known as the figure of Satan. He is very arrogant and he claims that he is superior to Adam and he defies God's wish to bow down before the figure of Adam. And this sets up a particular dynamic in human history, according to the Quran, where the basic um, moral challenge facing human beings is between this potential to listen to the appeals and the seduction of Satan, who begins his career at this time, versus the other appeal to follow the commandments and the righteous ways prescribed by God. And so this eternal challenge that human beings have to face is really this struggle between good, the path prescribed by God and his prophets, and alternatively, the path of evil rooted in the temptations of Iblis or of Satan. And in this struggle, God says in the Quran that he's very much with human beings, provided that human beings make the necessary effort. The Quran is clear that if human beings make this effort in the direction of God, they will be rewarded. So the key point here, when one reads these early Quranic surahs or chapters about human creation is that the concept of freedom is central to this story. Human beings have a choice rooted in the existence of an independent free will to choose between good and evil. And human beings, we're told in the Quran, are personally responsible for their choices and they will be held accountable on the day of judgment, on the Yom al-Qiyamah, 
for the choices that they make. Thus, to ignore the concept of freedom, and this is really the critical part, to ignore the concept of freedom is to, in effect, reject the very basic moral challenge that God has set up for humanity. Just to quote from the late Fazlur Rahman, the great Islamic scholar from the University of Chicago, he said that the Quran that he said that that the Quran rejects the concept of absolute determinism in human behavior. Denying free choice on on the part of man is not only to deny almost the entire content of the Quran, but to undercut its very basis. The Quran by its own claim is an invitation to man to come to the right path. And so without the concept of freedom, this would be impossible. It would undermine in many ways the core basic story of human creation that is laid out very clearly in the numerous passages throughout the Quran. So for example, there's that very famous Quranic verse or ayah that Muslims are free to choose their religion. La ikra'a fideen, there shall be no compulsion in religion. Truth stands clear from error. There's another very famous Quranic passage that God does not change the condition of a people unless they change it themselves. Um, you know, many verses along these lines. And of course, there's also that very famous prophetic statement or hadith that every Muslim child is taught from a very young age that the Prophet Muhammad encouraged his followers to, quote, seek knowledge unto China. All of this presupposes the basic existence of an element of freedom to choose and to make these decisions. If you don't have the freedom, you can't travel to China. And so um, one can build on this story from the very early example of the Prophet Muhammad in Medina there was a relative amount of freedom for the prophet to preach the new religion that he had been entrusted with. He speaks to the members of the Quraysh tribe. He tries to convince them when he's not allowed to practice his freedom, when he's persecuted, he then migrates in this the famous Hijra event where he migrates to Medina, where he sets up an early Islamic state that allows for freedom of religion for all of the religious communities. And so in that early Islamic story of the Prophet Muhammad's life in Mecca and in Medina, the concept of freedom is foundational to the early message of Islam. And this, of course, one can extend this further, the expansion of Islam throughout the world across North Africa into Spain and west into India spreads in these parts of the world, largely as a result of both merchants, travelers, Sufi saints, and the wars that were taking place. And in the, in, in the context of the spread of Islam, you know, freedom is really central. Islam promotes, preaches, engages with other ideas, and eventually wins new converts because the ideas that are inherent within Islam are more superior to the, exi to, to the existing ideas that, um, that are in place in the lands where Islam spreads. So one can sort of, I think, very clearly read into the early history of Islam, the concept of freedom, and to remove the concept of freedom is to, in many ways, undermine the very basic, I think, Quranic story, but also the very basic early history um, and expansion of Islam, as I just briefly indicated. Now, let me just end on one last point. I think the biggest challenge today that many Muslims have with the concept of freedom is they look at the West and they look at the lifestyles of many people in Western societies, and they see that freedom is now synonymous with sexual 
permissiveness, with moral corruption, and they fear that if we accept the concept of freedom or liberty, then our societies will start to emulate those aspects of the West that we find very objectionable from a moral position, uh, from an Islamic moral position. And I think this is one of the big, I think, sticking points that lead many Muslims to try and reject the concept of freedom entirely and to stick very rigidly and very safely to a much more conservative and rigid reading of Islam, hoping and thinking that the challenges of the modern world won't uh, affect modern Muslims. But of course, that I think is fundamentally a recipe for failure because we're living in a globalized world and we're living in a world where everyone is interconnected and you can't shut yourself off and live in a cave or live underground pretending that the developments that are taking place in the world will not affect you. So I think this is one of the fundamental I think moral and political challenges that Muslims have to face is, you know, how do you both appreciate and value the concept of freedom while at the same time not of going down the path of those societies and those behaviors that one sees in Western societies that many Muslims find morally objectionable. I think there can be a reconciliation. I think there can be a balance struck. I don't think it's a black and white situation. I think fundamentally, as long as Muslims are allowed to choose, to debate, to make their own decisions, then I think they can reach a very comfortable accommodation and reconciliation with modern concepts of liberty and freedom, as I've briefly outlined in my initial remarks. So I'll stop there and turn the floor back over to Ali. Thank you so much, uh, Nader, uh, for presenting your position on this important question of whether it's liberty is an Islamic value. Um, before I open the floor, I would also like to start by one question, but I will make a logistic announcement for the participants of this webinar that already we are in a discussion mode and um, and uh, those who want to start, want you know, raise a question raise or a comment, or make comment, contribution, are free to do so. Free, uh, so but we will uh, but we obviously uh, observe the same rules as we would do in, in, in physical in seminars that seminar we would respect when one participant is speaking. And if there is any sort of technical issue, you can always write down in the chat box, which I guess is available on your respective screens. Uh, Dr. Nader, uh, one uh, question to begin with is um, you refer to the Quran and you refer to the Islamic history and all of us are aware that of course the Quranic verses are clear in terms of uh, religious freedoms and also we are aware that uh, Islamic history uh, largely has maintained these level of freedom in the societies and, uh, and then you refer to the present day's problems uh, which are very obvious in Asia. Just to put you in context, interestingly, you gave an example of Indonesia about two months back in Istanbul Network International Conference. One of our keynote speakers was Nahdatul Ulama Sekhi Janu Gus Yahya Khalil. And one of his main points in his keynote was 
us that uh, there is a need of recontextualized re Islamic teachings. And his, you know, his, he, said that, he said that uh, there are problems, uh, there are problems in, the in the discourse itself. itself. Uh, he was referring he was to particular, particular texts contained in Fiqh in Islamic jurisprudence, which, let's say, the extremists or other people now use. So they use under the religious authority to promote their own version for suppression. And, uh, and and that is the level. I mean, that is the level which is practically followed by religious and masses all over the world. Follow those those ulama. So where are we on that level? What do you think? What's your viewpoint on this problem? And then we can discuss No, I think it's an excellent question, and I think it's a huge problem. The traditional interpretation of Islam with respect to these questions of religious freedom, the rights of minorities, the limits of freedom, is prejudiced and biased toward a very restrictive and pre-modern reading of these questions. And so if you just open the text and if you consult any sort of religious scholar, whether we're talking about scholars in the Sunni tradition or the Shia tradition, they will present arguments that are very in my view, traditional and unethical. And so many Muslims will say, well, this is what Islam says. We have to stop and block and prevent the rights of these groups from manifesting themselves. So I think it is a huge problem. And I think the challenge for Muslims who are trying to reconcile their religion with the modern world is to develop a culture and a tradition of Islamic interpretation that is much more ethical than the interpretation that we often hear from many of our ulama and many of our so-called learned clerics. And the challenge really is precisely what I stated. It's an ethical challenge. It requires fundamentally Muslims with goodwill to become specialists, a knowledgeable own religious tradition, and to be able to go back and reread the original sources and come up with interpretations of Islam that are more ethical and more in keeping with modern challenges. And so I think that fundamentally is the way forward. The sad, you know, development that we sometimes see is we see Muslims who feel that the other side is so hegemonic in its dominating of the discourse that Islam can only be interpreted, some Muslims believe, in such a rigid and unethical and anti-modern way that many Muslims give up. And they say there's nothing that we can uh, do with these interpretations of Islam. We simply have to reject an Islamic framework altogether, and we should just work within a secular framework if we want to advance rights. And of course, doing that is deeply problematic because effectively you isolate yourself from the religious opinion of the vast majority of Muslims who are shaped by their religious identity. So the challenge is really an ethical challenge. It's a challenge of interpretation. It's a challenge of rereading the sources. It's the challenge of engaging those people one of the things that I'm very insistent upon and I think has not taken place is we need to have much more public interaction, debate and exchanges with fellow Muslims who we disagree with to try and do it in the spirit of unity, the spirit of civility and to bring different imams who have different interpretations on these questions related to freedom and to have, you know, serious debates over whether in a modern context 
it is Islamic to ban, for example, Baha'is or some other religious group that don't have a standing in the Quran, do we have the right to ban their uh, right to religious practice and religious freedom? How does Islam respond, for example, to all of these you know, other related challenges that are not explicitly stated in the Quran, but present modern challenges? So I think that fundamentally the what you state is a huge problem. And you know, if I had the resources and if I had the financial backing, I would give scholarships to bright young Muslims to go and get religious training, but also really to invest deeply and heavily in the study of Islamic ethics, to be able to sort of both understand Islamic tradition, but at the same time also understand the serious modern developments related to human rights and civil rights that shape the modern international discourse that most countries at least claim they subscribe to. I think that's fundamentally the way forward. It's the challenge of interpretation and it's a challenge of presenting an ethical interpretation of Islam. Thank you so much, Thank you so much. We, have we have a few participants from different countries and I would now request them to participate in the discussion. Okay, so there's a question that was posted. Do you want to read the question, Ali, and then I'll try and answer it? Yeah, okay. Yeah. I have uh, Razaullah from Pakistan. His question is about the role of religious scholars in, in lawmaking and their position in state governance. And besides, could the penalties prescribed in Quran be implemented in the absence of religious uh, people? I think the, the first part of the question is particularly important. Now that we have more democratic regimes, in Muslim countries and also the also fact that the religious fact, political religious parties political are becoming parties part of the state of, uh, in Malaysia, India, in Pakistan, Pakistan, in Iran, in and in so many other countries so many other we can see these examples. So when the religious when scholars the religious become scholars part become of the state governance, state governance and, particularly and particularly on the back of democracy, of democracy or otherwise, um, what is their role is there in knowledge? Uh, that's the more development Yeah, no, it's a very good question. And the problem is that when the state appoints a group of religious scholars as the spokespersons for Islam, we get a situation that leads to the abuse of power. And we get into a situation where a lot of injustice then flows from that. Because let's say that someone has a different interpretation of Islam or has a different understanding of what these state-appointed religious scholars have said. Well, immediately that person who raises an objection will be branded as a enemy of Islam, an enemy of the state. The state will then try and silence him. They'll accuse him of being un-Islamic, being an ally of Western powers. And you get this situation that we have right now in many Muslim countries when the state controls and tries to determine what is Islamic and what is not. And then this leads to a lot of problems. So my own answer to the question is that religion has to be fundamentally freed from state control. When the state tries to control the religion and tell the rest of society how to believe and which interpretation is more authentic, you lead to the abuse of problems. I'm all in favor of religious scholars being active in public debates, giving advice, sharing their opinion, advising governments on what is Islamic or what is not, but the fundamental decisions 
on what constitutes the law and how the law is written. Religious scholars should not have veto power over the construction and the writing of the law. Those decisions should be made by the representatives of the people who could consult with religious scholars if they want or consult with different religious scholars if they want. And then fundamentally, it's the elected representatives of the people in society that should determine the law of the land. Um, when you get a situation where the state appoints uh, these religious scholars and then follows their injunction, you often lead to a situation of exactly what we see today in Saudi Arabia, exactly what we see today in the Islamic Republic of Iran, and in many other countries. You get political religious persecution, you get human rights violations, you have political prisoners. And so I think th this is a key point that I think many Muslims struggle with is how do we determine what the law is and um, what role should religious scholars play? And fundamentally, my position is that religious scholars should be able and should be encouraged to share their views with the public, but they shouldn't have state protection and the state should not appoint some scholars over others and claim that there's only one opinion on all of these very delicate matters. Those decisions fundamentally should be up to the democratically elected representatives of the people who then should make the decisions and write the law. Uh, uh, great. Uh, thank you for the elaborate uh, answer. The second part also is interesting. Uh, it's very specific to the penalties uh, yeah, I think, well, look, you know, I think these Hadood laws and ordinances some Muslim countries have implemented as state law, these are laws and these are provisions that were written in a pre-modern context. They were written at a time when the values that most people subscribe to were very different. And when you sort of try and implement very rigidly those laws that were written in a different time and implement them um, literally in a modern context, it leads to a lot of abuse of power. So I think what needs to happen now is there needs to be some sort of reconciliation and some sort of rethinking of the underlying values that these Hudud ordinances were meant to promote in society um, and see if there are more humane ways, more ethical ways of dealing with these issues of crime and punishment that don't involve the type of brutal punishments that shock a lot of people and push a lot of people away from Islam and give Islam a bad name on the global uh, scale. So this is really, again, another um, um, challenge, another task, another case where Muslims, I think, need to engage in a whole-scale public debate and ethical reconsideration of the ordinances that are in Islam's juridical and religious and legal tradition with respect to crime and punishments and what do sort of modern values and human rights values demand from us? Can we reconcile those two things? And I think it's again a challenge of, like I said, of reinterpretation. I don't think we need to sort of literally try and implement injunctions that were written in the pre-modern era and try to implement those in the, in the modern era. I think there are many other ways that we can think about these things. What needs to happen again is there needs to be a deep public ethical reconciliation 
reconsideration of these Hadood ordinances. I think there are many other options that Muslim societies can be pursuing that can deal with questions of crime and punishment. And I don't think we need to sort of accept the rigid injunctions of, of legal requirements that were written, you know, hundreds, sometimes thousands of years ago and implement them. I think we need to sort of have this public uh, discussion as to whether these Hadood ordinances actually do stand up to scrutiny from Islam's ethical tradition. Uh, great. So uh, there's great. one, so there's one, one more question and I'll come back to this discussion. Ahmed Dukman is from Malaysia. And his question is, is there any un-Islamic concept of freedom in liberal Islam understanding? So I'm not sure if I'm able to properly interpret this question. But if you can comment on that. Well, you know what, can we maybe ask the questioner to share with us a bit more clarity so we can understand his question, if he can maybe write a few more sentences? I mean, I can offer... Yeah. You go ahead. Go ahead, Ali. Go ahead. Uh, no, I think I'll, I'll come no, back to this. Back. But you can offer your thoughts. Sure. I, I, if, if I'm understanding his question correctly, I would say that anything that violates explicitly the teachings of the Quran or the traditions of the Prophet, then I think those would be un-Islamic sort of understandings of a liberal understanding of Islam. In other words, I don't believe a liberal understanding of Islam is a completely open terrain that people can say whatever they want. I think if you claim to have a I don't like the term liberal because it creates all these confusions. I prefer the term ethical. An ethical, more modern understanding of Islam has to still engage with Islam's, the Islamic legal, intellectual, moral, and scriptural tradition. So if you want to advance a more ethical interpretation of Islam, that also demands you engage with the text, you engage with the debates of previous scholars, but you also engage with modern debates as well, such as human rights, such as democracy, such as liberty. So I think that's where I would sort of, you know, draw a distinction and insist upon that a modernist ethical interpretation of Islam does not mean we reject in any way the Quran or the teachings of the Prophet. It means we reinterpret that tradition in a much more ethical and modern way. Uh, yeah, I uh, think, yeah, um, I think uh, our participants uh, 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 are uh, typing more, typing more uh, comments here, but comments while, here, but uh, while uh, we uh, see uh, that more, see questions, that more questions, questions, let me go back to the earlier answer, answer you provided in Razawullah's uh, question on uh, the state uh, and role of religious scholars and uh, in, the, in the lawmaking. Now, in uh, practical terms, we have countries uh, which have declared Islam as an official religion. Uh, you know, Pakistan, Iran, Malaysia. And then the, there are countries uh, like Indonesia uh, which have not done so. Uh, and there are still, of course, Muslim majorities there. Um, uh, do you think that that kind of uh, constitutional arrangement has been helpful for more or, or less religious freedom. You see a relationship between these societies where they have declared Islam as official religion versus others who have not. And do you see some lessons from there? You know, it's a really great question. Um, I teach a course here at the University of Denver called Religion-State Relations in Comparative Perspective, where we look at the whole 
history of religion-state relations in the West, and then we look at a few cases in the non-Western world. And what we see is that in the history of religion-state relations in the West, you have uh, examples where countries that have become democratic over the course of time still have an official state religion. For example, in England today, the Anglican Church is the official state religion, and within the laws of England, there are all these provisions that give the Anglican Church a certain set of privileges that don't have. You also have you know, examples of um, religious state relations where there is a separation between religion and state, and there is no, no official state religion. Um, the interesting case of which is also reproduced in any other countries in Europe where you have an official state religion is what you see over time as even though there is an official established state religion, the political systems in question here begin to extend the same rights and privileges that the official religion has to other religious communities in terms of state funding for schools, in terms of the right to the public practice of different religions. The point that I'm trying to get, it doesn't really matter whether there is an official state religion or whether a constitution does not designate any official state religion. What really matters is in what way does the state relate to society in terms of um, different religious groups? Does it treat all religious groups in society, both the majority religious group and the minority religious group? equally in terms of nation, in terms of representation, and in terms of state resources, or does it practice a biased and prejudicial view where some religions get more recognition in state resources and others do not? So I think both examples that you have cited, um, Indonesia and the case of Iran, India, Pakistan, etc., both of those examples can evolve that can lead to a just society. But it really is a question of um, focusing on key foundational political concepts and themes such as equality of treatment, such as state neutrality in terms of how the state treats different religions. It can have an official religion and it can give the official religion certain recognition, but it also should not discriminate against members of society who are not part of that religion, because then you get a problem of fundamental, I think, discrimination and injustice. And I think Muslims living in political contexts where they are the minority religion, they would rightly and they have rightly demanded from the state equal recognition from the same resources, rights and privileges that other religious groups get. So I think the real key here is the theme of equality, equal treatment and non-discrimination. I think those are themes that are fundamental Islamic. I think those are themes that Muslims living in minority context would demand of other governments that were treating the Muslim community in that context differently. But also, I think the, the bigger problem here when, when we're talking about Indonesia and we're comparing it with Iran, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, it's really the question of effective democratic governance, of free and fair elections, 
the absence of you know political corruption and decadence and the abuse of power and authoritarianism i mean these are all things that are absolutely uh, requisites for preconditions for i think the proper functioning of religion state relations because if you don't have those things in place then people who are in positions of power will then abuse their power to stay in power by manipulating religion. And that's exactly what we've seen in Iran, exactly what we've seen in Saudi Arabia, and exactly what we've seen in other countries around the world, both in the history of the West and in more modern periods of time. So I think th that's the way I reconcile these two things. I, I, I think they can go both problem with having a country such as Tunisia, for example, when it was writing its constitution for officially designating Islam as the official religion. But then that also should not mean that non-Muslims are then discriminated against or don't have the same rights, privileges to be elected, to be represented, to get state resources that are not part of do we have another question? Thank you for, uh, yes, we do have another question. Uh, Thank you for, uh, Selena. Uh, yes, we do have another question from Singapore. Uh, and the question is that um, uh, I believe that one of the basic principles in Islam is the enjoining of what is good and what is forbidding of the evil. Uh, Muslims look to their leaders, elected or otherwise, to implement this. There are quite a number of Muslim majority countries that have laws that forbid certain number of Muslims. Islamic acts in the public affair, for example, eating in the public during Ramadan, with fairly widespread public support. That is, citizens want their leaders to maintain such laws. How would the ethical approach you speak of handle such issues? That's a good question. I think an ethical approach to that particular dilemma is that if the majority members of a society demanded that during Ramadan, people should observe certain rules of abstaining from food and drink in the public sphere, then I have no problem with that. I think that's perfectly allowed, ethical and democratic. What I would be very reluctant to support would be the use of state coercion to try and go into somebody's home or someone who was not observing those rituals during Ramadan, force them or imprison them to stop eating. So I think the state can sort of have a set of guidelines. But even if someone, I mean, first of all, the question, if you're a non-Muslim living in a Muslim society, then there should be no, I think, ban on you consuming food or drink during Ramadan because that's not your religious tradition. But even among Muslim members of society, I would strongly object to the idea that laws should be passed where the state could go and imprison, arrest, or punish a Muslim because he chose not to fast or chose to eat during Ramadan. I think fundamentally in keeping with the ethical Quranic provision that there should be no compulsion in religion, that Muslims should be able to choose whether they want to practice Islam or not. It's not the role of the state to go and, and tell Muslims whether they do or not, whether they should practice Islam or not. So I think that's how I would handle that particular question. The state can issue sort of guidelines, laws, it could sort of expect good conduct from people who are, um, um, whether they're Christian or they're Muslim and they choose not to fast during Ramadan, one could sort of expect from those people to be respectful of those in their midst who happen to be fasting. So if you're going to consume food during Ramadan, there's other Muslims who are fasting, to go and eat in a private room, to not flaunt your food in front of someone who is fasting. Those can be guidelines, but I would be strong, I would strongly object to the state 
going and sort of arresting people or punishing, because then that would violate, I think, a fundamental Quranic ethical position of, you know, freedom of religion and the right to religious practice. So that's broadly how I would handle that particular dilemma. Uh, fair enough, uh, Dr. Nader. I think one, one of the supplementary questions would be these injunctions, these Islamic injunctions, would be then applicable only, let's say, for the Muslims, for believers. Uh, and maybe we, we, we can, uh, or can we say, and we then lies this statement that uh, then uh, this system uh, which Islam uh, uh, prescribes, um, let's say Quranic codes or other uh, religious uh, codes, would be applicable only for the Muslims them, themselves, and they are not perhaps in a sense universal in that in, in that nature. Is it a fair generalization? Uh, or, or not really. Well, yes, I think there is. It is. It is a fair generalization that the Islamic provisions and guidelines are did um, to those Muslims to accept the basic provisions, values, and belief systems of Islam. Um, but having said that, I don't think that it's the business of governments to then go and regulate how Muslims practice or be. Their religion or, or, or interpret their religion. I think if when we talk about the role of the state in trying to enforce these provisions, then we get into a lot of problems. But yes, broadly speaking, I have no problem with your claim that the provisions and injunctions of Islam apply to those people who accept the basic values and belief systems of Islam. We apologize for this abrupt end as there were technical issues. This webinar is brought to you by Islam and Liberty Network. If you are looking for more, you can find it on our website at islamandlibertynetwork.org. And if you want to help us, there is a donation button on the site. Thank you for your support and we hope you found it interesting.